Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Wow, y'all are a bunch of Ebenezers. We got to try this again. Like, were you, all, you thinking about all the Christmas presents you got to buy or something? Well, good morning again. My name is uh, Sweet Tea. I'm the aforementioned Sweet Tea, uh, as Brandon said. Uh, I'll get him for that later. Uh, and and just, just, just as you're kind of wondering, like maybe you, uh, you didn't see last week and, and just the, the question that's coming up in your mind, yes, I am trying to hide a turkey underneath my sweater. Uh, it just happens around this time of year. I'm just joking. I don't really know where I'm going with that. We're so glad that you're here this morning and glad to be a part of it, glad to, to open up God's Word together and, and begin this Christmas season, right? As, as Brandon mentioned, the, the trees have popped up on the, on the stage. The, there's spots all over the, the, the church and the, the building, and there's, you can see it downtown Franklin and all the kinds of places in the mall and those kind of places that it's Christmas time, right? And I, maybe you know this about me, I love Christmas. It's really beginning with Thanksgiving all the way through the new year, I love it all. Like, it's so exciting for me. Like, I, I listen to Christmas music year-round. I know you can judge me if you want to. That's fine. Uh, I don't really care what you think about that. I, I love Christmas music. Yesterday, or Friday, we drove back to, uh, from Baton Rouge where we were visiting family uh, to, to Franklin. And uh, eight hours, five to six of those hours were spent listening to Christmas music, not because my kids wanted to, but because I wanted to. And, uh, and we're building character, right? Character and memories. They just have to listen to Bing Crosby. It's part of life, right? <laughs> but I love this time of year. I, I love all of it. I, I love the music and the food. I love the time with family, the memories, the, the packed schedules, the parties. I love the decorations and the lights. I love the movies, except for the Hallmark movies. I don't like the Hallmark movies. A guy has to draw a line somewhere, right? But mostly what I love about Christmas, about this time of year, is the hope that it brings. The hope that is, that is ushered, the, as the song says, the, as the carol says, the thrill of hope is renewed. Right? In this time of year, every year, there's this joy and anticipation and hope that, that, that is birthed outside in, in, in this time for all of us. Right? It's maybe the hope that the gift that you've bought for that special someone really uh, excites them or surprises them. Maybe it's that you're hoping that the gift that somebody else bought you excites and surprises you, right? Gift cards. Just go with that, right? And you're like, that's not a lot of thought. Okay, I'll do the thinking. Just give me the card. Maybe the, it's the hope of, or, or the hope of the looking forward to some of those family traditions, some of those things that your family and friends have done year after year, and this causes that anticipation and that hope during this time of year. For some of you, it's the reality that you hope that this time of year will bring restoration to a relationship that's maybe been broken. This time of year seems to foster, to encourage this type of hope. It's all around. And as Christians, we realize, as those who follow Christ, we realize that the real reason that this time of year is, it brings about and, and stirs that type of hope is because it's the time of year where we celebrate the long-awaited Jesus, the promised child whose birth was announced by angels as the good news for all the world on a hillside outside of the town of Bethlehem to a group of shepherds. They announced hope. 
We know that this season is a time of hope and, and, and that, that Jesus, as he's, as he's born, ushers in this hope in a world that's trapped in darkness and despair. And oftentimes at Christmas, especially in the, in the church, what we do is we open up the, the, the scriptures and we look to Matthew and Luke and, and we tell the story of Christmas from, their, from, from those two gospel perspectives. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Those are incredible stories. They're staples in really understanding this Christmas story. But the reality of this announcement of Jesus coming happened long before Matthew and Luke and John and Mark recorded it. Really, it gets its birth, its beginning, all the way in the beginning in the very first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis. One author even notes as you, as you read the Old Testament that you can't read the Old Testament without hearing this promise, this whisper that something's coming, that someone's coming. So for the next several weeks, what we're going to do here at this campus and across our three campuses as we gather is we're going to open up to one of those Old Testament passages that whispers so clearly, someone's coming, and that someone is great and stirs hope and joy in our hearts. As we turn, we're going to turn to the ninth chapter of Isaiah. And this short verse, this short chapter, or this little section that we're really going to focus in on over the next several weeks in verse 9 is rich with the truth that, that, we, that causes us, that encourages us to meditate and remind us why the child that was born in Bethlehem is the reason for such great hope and joy that happens in this time of year. And if you're able, I invite you to stand as, we, as I read this passage of Scripture, just standing just to remind ourselves that God's Word is our authority. We're not an authority over it. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back of the room uh, on, on those, the tables next to those poles, and we'd love for you to have one of those. That'll be our gift to you. The Scripture will also be on the screen. But hear these words. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoicing at the harvest, as warriors rejoicing when, they divide, when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdened them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for this morning and the opportunity to gather here and for the gatherings that are happening at all three of our campuses this morning and just this time to come and open up your word and this season to be reminded. We thank you for this rhythm of every year just again turning our eyes in this moment to this great event, the birth of your child, the birth of Jesus, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. 
We pray for just this moment here. God, you would open our eyes to the reason why we have hope. Because you are the wonderful counselor who's come to guide us and invite us to cast our cares on you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So there's two things I want to do. Is first, I want to kind of set up what's happening in this passage, kind of the setting and the context and who's talking. And, and that's really going to take the first half of our time. And then the second half, I just want to walk through just quickly the, this name, Wonderful Counselor. Because what we're going to do over the next several weeks is just kind of open up God's Word and explore those four names that are given to Jesus in this prophecy that Isaiah gives us in chapter 9. And this week we'll start with that wonderful counselor, but really to understand what's going on there and why this description of Jesus is so important, we really need to understand the setting of what's going on. And, and to that, we need to understand what's happening and who's talking. Isaiah is a prophet. Isaiah is, is one of the prophets that would speak on behalf of God's people. He, he, was, one, he was God's man in a time of the, the second half of Israel's kingdom period. This would have been about 200 years after David's death and 700 years before Jesus comes, that Isaiah is prophesying. He's speaking words on behalf of God. And prophets are, are those that, that, that speak God's words. Isaiah is, is just one of those people. And, and Isaiah's message really has two sides. As you read through these chapters that he, that he writes and, and that we have in, in the scriptures here, there's really two kind of sides to that message. And understanding the theme and the context, we can break apart those two sides and kind of get a picture of what's going on. The first is that there's a message of judgment. And then the second is a message of hope. We'll start with that message of judgment to kind of get the context of what's going on and sometimes when we hear prophecies, what we think is, is that there's a future event, right? That what comes to mind when we talk about prophecies is something that's going to occur in the future, that he's telling some mysterious day somewhere in the future. And obviously that's a part of what happens, especially in this passage. But that's not all that prophets do. Actually, the majority of what prophets do is really calling the people of God in the Old Testament to obedience to God in his word. They warn the people of God. They expose their sin. They call them back to obedience and, and, and remind them that God is faithful and true to put their, faith, their trust and hope in God's word and, and call them back to obedience and to walking in obedience. And so for the first part of Isaiah's message, what he's doing is he's bringing a message of judgment. He's warning the Israelites. He's exposing their sin. That he's, he's telling them that the cost of their rebellion, that there is a cost to their rebellion if they persist in walking this way in disobedience to God and his word, there's going to be a cost. And the cost that he describes in the passages in, in his book is that God would use the nations of Assyria and Babylon to judge the people. And as you read through, God brings that judgment about because the people don't turn from their ways of disobedience. He speaks this to them. He shares that, that, hey, this is what's happening. If you don't continue, if you continue to walk this way, there's going to be judgment that happens. And, and, and listen, a lot of times I think that we hear these words and people think about the Old Testament and that God is, God is mean or, or he's overbearing. The reality that God is using Isaiah to call the people back to obedience is the most loving and gracious thing that God could have done. He's saying, hey, listen, come back. 
It's God's love and grace that sends Isaiah, that, that brings, that, that declares, hey, walk in obedience to my word. There's the best way for you to live life. The best is in walking in obedience. And so when Jesus, or when God sends Isaiah and all these other prophets to warn and to call them back to obedience, it is all his grace. In the same way that parents give warnings to their kids, if they continue to walk in disobedience, there'll be repercussions. It's not because we, just, we don't love them. It's because we love them that we warn them before there's judgment, before there's punishment, to invite them back into walking in obedience. In this passage specifically, what, what's happening here, kind of got to have to go back to the beginning of chapter 9 and the end of chapter 8 to understand that Isaiah describes what life is like for the people of Israel during this time. If you go to the beginning, what we read just a second ago, it says this, that nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. That for the people of Israel during this time, as Isaiah is speaking, there's gloom and distress. And you skip to verse 2, it says, the people are walking in darkness, and they're living in a land of deep darkness. I mean, it doesn't paint a beautiful scene for the Israelites. What's happening for them is they live in a, in a place of gloom and distress and darkness. And, and obviously, for, for lots of different reasons, we can understand what that, what that looks like. And there's serious sides to that, but just to give an illustration that hopefully kind of captures it for us. Uh, for you, for you, those of you who are sports fans, uh, especially football fans, uh, do you know that time after the Super Bowl when you realize that there's not going to be football until like August? Gloom and despair, right? Amen? Like, what am I going to do for the next, I mean, for those of you who are not sports fans, let me, let me try this one. After you've binge-watched Stranger Things and you realize there's not going to be any more episodes for like a year, gloom and despair. Right? This is the place that they're living. This gloom and despair, this darkness is, is what's happening they were living in darkness. And the reality that we need to ask the question, why were they living in this darkness? Why was there this type of gloom and despair that was, that was resting on the people, the heaviness that would rest on the people of God? And if you turn back to chapter 8, the ending verses there tell us that it says, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not the people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Verse 20, consult God's instructions. And the testimony of warning, if anyone does not speak according to his words, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward. They will curse their king and their God, verse 22. And then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness, fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. The reason why they've done this is because they've looked outside the way that God designed them to live for the hope that they long for. There's a, there's a crisis of faith that's in the background of chapter 8 and what we read there. See, Ahaz is the king of Judea, and he's in the line of David, but he's nothing like David, who was a good king. Ahaz is, is not a good king. Ahaz is a king that's seeking wisdom outside of understanding of what God's word says. 
And the, and the crisis for Ahaz is, is that there's a, an impending invasion from other kingdoms. The, the, the other kingdom of Israel has already fallen to this invasion, and now there's more kingdoms that are coming in and they're pressing in on this area that Ahaz leads as the king of, of, of the Judea, of the Israelites, king of Judah. And so what Ahaz does in response is he makes an alliance, an agreement with Assyria. And this alliance is birthed out of political cunning and human wisdom. It's not, it's not an alliance that God would, would think was a good thing. It was faithless and disobedient. See, because God had already instructed his people not to make alliances with other nations. He had promised them that he was their God, that he knew their needs, and he would provide for them. In chapter 7 and 8, multiple times God calls Ahaz even to say, give Ask for a sign. I'll give you a sign as to the reason why I'm going to save the people and this is not going to happen to them. But Ahaz had already made up his mind that this was the, the agreement that he was going to make, the alliance that he was going to make. And so doing, he had been disobedient. And the people of Israel were living like their king as well. They were walking in disobedience. They were not believing God. Israel was following after idols, trusting in the world's wisdom but the wisdom had left them in darkness and gloom and distress. And the crisis of faith that Ahaz is going through and the people of God are going through as they've sought after these different, these, these mediums and spiritists that, that murmur and, and mutter, but they don't give good direction, is a crisis of faith that you and I all have to walk through time and time again. Crisis of faith where we have to, we have to see and understand that is God really going to provide. We have to wrestle with this just like the people of Israel did, this crisis of faith. And we don't use the words like idols and mediums and spirits, but we do the same thing as we seek wisdom, as we seek counsel, we run to things in the world and we put our hope in all kinds of different things other than Christ. Maybe it's our position. Maybe it's your position at work or your status in the community that you, that you put your hope in. That if you can just get the right job, if you can just get the right position at your company, if you can just get the right position in the community, then there'll be hope. Maybe it's not position, maybe it's your possessions. Maybe your garage is littered with things that you never touch anymore. You've time and time again put your hope in a possession, something that will stir and satisfy that longing that's in your heart something that will give you the hope that you've longed for, the, the joy that you've longed for. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's political figures that you trust in to bring change and peace. Maybe it's in your own power, physically, to be able to accomplish the job or intellectually to be able to figure out the problem. Maybe you put your hope in your education. I don't know what that's like. Maybe you think for students in the room, if you just make the right grades, all will be right. And it falls short. Maybe it's the recognition and applause of others that you put your hope in. Maybe it's your bank account. That if it can just get to a certain number, a certain place, there's hope and there's joy for you. The reality is that we, just like the Israelites and Ahaz, we make alliances with other things outside the God who created us and who loves us and who knows our needs and will protect us. And what happens in that place is we're left in gloom and despair and darkness just like they were left. 
I know that doesn't sound very Christmassy. It's not sugar plums and candy canes and presents under the tree, but it's really getting what we're doing is we're getting the picture of why Isaiah's birth announcement 700 years before Jesus would be born in the town of Bethlehem is such a big deal. Why this birth announcement ushers in a message of hope. Because that hope, that life-transforming hope rises from a place where we understand our desperate longing and need for a Savior. For something outside of ourselves, something greater than the people and the places and the possessions that we surround ourselves with, something that only could come from our Creator. We find ourselves in that place where hope rises when we sense our hopelessness and that the message of judgment was to bring the people of God to this understanding and then move them towards the message of hope. And there's no lack of hope in Isaiah's, in what Isaiah would prophesy and declare over and over again throughout his book, throughout the book of Isaiah. There's these moments where Isaiah would declare God's faithfulness despite the leadership's faithlessness despite their disobedience and looked forward to a time when God would fulfill his promises that he had made from the very beginning. And so into this judgment, the question of what is God's response? This message of hope, what is God's message of hope into this darkness, distress, and gloom? The message, the message of hope of what God would do is that he would send a light into the darkness. Verse 1 and verse 2, it says that they walked in darkness. Those who walked in darkness will see a great light. That God's response is that into that darkness, light would pierce through. That joy would interrupt sadness and sorrow. That victory would squash their defeat. And all of those things would point to the overwhelming and gracious response of God to bring a child, to birth a child, and not just any child, right? He was sending a new leader, a new king, his own son. Why? Because he loved them so much. Because he would not stop loving them. He would not give up on them, even in their disobedience. Even if you've not been around the church for very long, likely you've heard this passage of Scripture in John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world. And we see that God so loved the world, not just in John, but all the way back in the New Testament when he whispers, Someone's coming. A message of hope. Because despite their disobedience, he would not give up on them. Despite your disobedience, he will not give up on you. He loves you. And so he sends his son that anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And there's significance in what, what Isaiah says 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And the words that he uses that he says he's born and he's given. That what what Isaiah is saying 700 years before Jesus would be born in Bethlehem is that God has a rescue plan and that rescue plan would be sufficient because Jesus would be born, which speaks to the fact that Jesus would be fully human, 100% human. He would feel the things that we feel. He would hurt the way that we would hurt. He would weep the way that we would weep. Mary would carry Jesus in her belly just like every other mom 
carries a child in her belly for nine months. And when he cried, he relied on Mary to feed him, just like all of us relied on our parents. When he was hurt, he relied on Mary and Joseph to comfort him. He was 100% human, fully human, but he was also given. Not only would he be born, he would be given. And these are significance because it says what, what that speaks to is Isaiah saying it, what he's declaring far before Jesus would be given and be born is that Jesus is Messiah. He's God, fully God. That he existed before he would come to earth and walk the ground that we would walk. That before he would be our savior, he was our creator. That he was with God in the beginning and when he was birthed, when he was given uh, to earth, he would be given as fully God. It has to be this way. And Isaiah knew it 700 years before Jesus would be born, that it had to be this way. Because without it, without God, without Christ being fully God and fully man, his death and burial and resurrection would mean nothing. He had to be God in the flesh. His flesh had to be 100%. And he had to be God 100%. So into that, as if that were not enough, as if this rescue plan that God would have to send his son, fully God and fully man, was not enough, there's more. And for the remainder of our time, I just want to stop and look at just those two words, wonderful and counselor. That the birth of this son, this child, that what God would give to the people would make a difference. It would be the turning point of every human life. It would hinge, to his birth would be the hinge on which history would rest. And these four names in verse 6 give a description of what that looks like. It was common in the ancient world for kings as they took the throne for them to be given other names. And those names would be given to describe as an outline or a, a mission statement, a purpose statement, if you will, of, of what the king's mission was, his, his purpose, his desire as he ruled. And this, these four words, these phrases that describe at the end of, end of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, does exactly that, that functions as an understanding of him saying he would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And ultimately, foundationally, what Isaiah is telling us as he declares these names is that Jesus would be enough. That Jesus would be all that we need. So let's begin with wonderful. Let's break this apart just to understand what, what, what this, as, he, as he's wonderful counselor, but what does the word wonderful mean? In English, the, the word wonderful speaks to something being extraordinary or marvelous exciting, surprising, or excellent. In the Old Testament, wonderful means something a little more like miraculous and supernatural. If there's anything in Scripture that tells us that God is superhuman, that He's a superhero, it would be this passage. He's wonderful. He does miraculous things. Psalms gives us a picture of what this word is, how this word is used in that understanding of miraculous. It says in Psalm 78, verses 12 and 13, in the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, 
the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and he made the water stand like a heap. And so what we, what we see is that this wonderful in this passage is, is beyond just exciting. It's to the level of supernatural and, and transcendent and miraculous. And so Isaiah is telling us that this child that would be born in Bethlehem 700 years from now, he would be too great for us to understand. Words could not adequately describe him. He would be wonderful. As I reflected on this this week, just slowing down to think about what, we've, what we're hearing in this passage and this description of who Jesus would be, and what he would do, it made me think of the, and ask the question the last time that the name of Jesus made me awe that in the, in, at the understanding of who Jesus is and all that he had done for me and for this world and, and coming to die for our sins, that when was the last time that it caused me to marvel and stand in awe of what he's done? I can tell you that last night, multiple times, praise the Lord, there was lots of times that I stood in awe and celebrated as the LSU Tigers crossed the line and scored touchdowns. It was embarrassing, actually. Some of us will, will travel during the Christmas season and we'll see snow-capped mountains and we'll stand in awe of them. Isn't Christ more wonderful? Shouldn't he stir an awe and a wonder in us? Or have we become so apathetic and, and oblivious? Have we lost that wonder? Have our souls become calloused? My prayer is that he would awaken that sense of wonder for us. That during this Christmas season, that, that the, the presents and the lights and the parties and the songs would rather, rather than being something that would block us from seeing the beauty and the wonder of Christ, they would be signposts pointing us to his extravagance and his beauty and the wonderful name of Jesus. And we would sit in awe of him. One of the ways that I can invite you to be with me on that journey is to join in in the Advent reading plan that we've put out. It started last week, but just walking through Scripture, being reminded of who Christ is and what he's done for us. If you've gotten your copy of RH Life, it's, it's in the middle of that. It's, it's also the, the reading plan itself is on the, the, the app. And every day on social media, we're posting those, those, those passages to read. But I'm going to just invite you to join in. Spend some time over the next several weeks as Christmas approaches. In wonder of the birth of this incredible child and his life as perfect, not sinning. Wonder in his teaching be in awe at the wonder of his miracles. Be in awe at the wonder of his death, that he would die for you and I. Be in awe at his resurrection. That at the end of three days, just as it was promised, he rose from the dead and conquered death and sin. 
We should stand in awe. Let it happen for all of us this, this season. That it would not just be the most wonderful time of the year because there's presence, but it would be the most wonderful time of year because we stand in awe and wonder of the one who came and is coming again. He is wonderful beyond our description. And not only is that, he's a counselor. So what does this mean that he's a counselor? And we, we understand the word counselor in, in English, the, the description or, or the definition is one who would come alongside to give advice and to share wisdom, assist in navigating thoughts and situations. The reality is it seems that there's really counselors everywhere. There's obviously those who are, who are professional counselors, people who we need to go to to learn and, and, and talk about what we're walking through. And, and if you're in a season where you need someone to come alongside you and, and be a counselor for you, we have on staff an incredible counselor. Point you to Kathy Kuhn to be able to just to start that conversation. And I know this season is one of those seasons where in the midst of that joy and excitement, there's also a lot of times that it brings up that despair and we need to walk with somebody. So there's those that are professional, but there's also those who are not professional, right? Those who are good and bad counselors, those who are paid and unpaid, those who are invited and uninvited, mother-in-laws. If you're watching, I love you. It's like everyone, everywhere we look, there's someone that's ready to give us counsel. Every commercial we watch, every magazine that we read and open, there are still those things. If you didn't know, there's magazines. Every ad on social media, every celebrity, every author, every politician is ready to give us counsel, ready to offer solutions for our problems, even if they can't solve their own. And so what are we supposed to do? The Israelites... They ran to themselves. Ahaz thought, sought his own wisdom and the wisdom of those around him. But what are we supposed to do? We put our hope in Christ. The one that Isaiah proclaimed would come. He would come as a wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor, as we, as we put those two words together, because, because he's a wonderful counselor, there is no darkness or distress there's no struggle or anxiety that's too great for him to navigate for us. There's nothing that we can hide in a corner away from the light that God can't handle as that wonderful counselor. As the wonderful counselor, he's invited us to bring our needs to him. In Matthew, he tells us, Jesus himself, the wonderful counselor says, come to me all ye who are heavy laden burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The invitation is to cast our cares on him because he cares for us, but not only is he one who invites us to cast our cares on him, he's one that guides us out of that darkness into the light. He's the wonderful counselor that we desperately need, the counselor who guides us out of that darkness into the light, not because he just knows where the light is, but because he himself is the light. He's the wonderful counselor who guides us out of that sorrow and that anxiety into peace, not because he just knows where peace is or where he can find it in a book, but because he is peace. 
he draws us to himself to trust in him, to put our hope in him. He brings us out of sorrow into joy because he is himself joy. He guides us out of despair into hope because he is himself our hope. And he knows our deepest struggles and our deepest sorrows and our fears. He invites us to cast our cares on him. He is a wonderful counselor. Too great for us to understand. But knowing clearly everything that we need. And his coming ushers in hope. Hope that we can't find in any other person or any other thing. And it doesn't just usher in hope. He is our hope. As we close this morning, there's two things I want to do for, two, two kind of spots that we need to we, we need, what we need to do as we close. And first is that we need to worship through giving. This is not an interruption. Don't, don't lose focus right now, okay? If you need to shuffle to get something, but, but stay focused. It's not an interruption of our time of worship, not an interruption of, of what God's doing. He calls us to give as an act of worship. And so ushers, if you start making your way to the front, So this is a response. This is a part of our response. If you're, if you're a partner and you've given faithfully and sacrificially, we just thank you so much. Because of your giving, we're, we have the opportunity. You, you allow us, you, you get to be a part of us being able to bring the hope of Christ into places that are dark, like the mall over the next several weeks. As we wrap gifts and share Christ through putting paper on a present, we get to share the hope of Christ and your giving allows us to do that and we thank you for it. If you're a guest, we are certainly not asking for you to give any, any financial, uh, con- any financial uh, gift this morning. We just ask you to drop that connection card in the offering bucket as it passes by. And just let us know that you were here so that we can connect with you can also on the back of that card just give us a prayer request or a praise and we'd love to join alongside you this is all of these things are opportunities for you to respond this morning they're not an interruption and as that as that bucket passes i want to invite you then just to kind of focus in on the words of the song that we're singing oh come oh come emmanuel the words of this hymn that that declare this longing for hope to come and the rejoicing in the fact that he came and knowing that he has, he is wonderful and he's a counselor beyond our understanding who invites us to bring our needs to him. Let's pray together. Jesus, I prayed this morning just for your spirit to move in a mighty way.
I'm convinced because your word tells us that that as we gather in this place that your spirit is here. You are wonderful counselor present with us in this moment. And God, I know that there are more than one individual, that there's more than one individual in this room that desperately needs you to be their wonderful, miraculous, transcendent counselor who invites us to bring our needs and guides us out of the darkness into the light. God, would you move in this moment as we respond to you? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.